ba do da ba do. I heard that the other day. It made me very nostalgic for ah. third grade. What are they listening to in uh, Europe these days? Old American pop music. So probably bop. We <laughs> 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 didn't hear much music. Oh. We did hear a lot of dickheads, though. What? People in Paris were mean and horrible. Aaron got pickpocketed twice. Twice? (laughs) How is that even possible? Once in Brussels and once in Paris. Hey, book friends. This is Corey. Thanks for listening along as we have a book club of two over a cup of tea. Our goal is to explore beloved genres as well as push ourselves out of our comfort zone and explore genres we might typically overlook or avoid. In each episode, we discuss a randomly selected genre. We will be sharing our reading experience and a brief review of the books we recommended to each other from the previous episode. Also a heads up, so that we can have a rich and in-depth conversation, there may be spoilers about the books we are discussing. All right, let's get started. This is Season 2, Episode 11. Today we are talking about how's it going friend i haven't seen you in literally a month it's true it's been a long time it's good you've been to europe and back europe and back i posted on instagram with my books and tea water bottle i saw that (laughs) you had a birthday birthday which i missed you came to the tea last time i know but i was sad it's okay I won't hold it against you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I brought you back Belgium chocolate. She did. As promised, as mentioned in our last podcast. Best podcast, best <laughs> friend ever. They taste pretty good. <laughs> we tried some, and I was like, these are good travels. Mm. I pretty much ate my way around. In addition to walking around San Francisco from our listeners, I walked seven miles around San Francisco on Saturday and three on Sunday. Well, three of them. Well, I'm in Berkeley. We'll just say Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Anyways. But I also ate my way and drank yeah. my way around the city. I was, like, stopping every, like, five minutes. I'm like, ooh, macaroons. Ooh, farmer's market. Ooh, cheese. Ooh, fruit. I kind of feel like that's how I was in Paris, at least. Mm-hmm. I feel like I ate a lot of pastries. But we were walk- walking, like, ten miles every day. Like, mm-hmm. By the time we were done, I think I calculated about 90 miles is what we walked in yeah. two weeks. Oh, I did have a couple really good croissants because, of mm. course, there's some really excellent bakeries yeah. and some good sourdough. I just, yeah, I ate a lot. I made a list of all the cuisines that we can't get in Flagstaff, and that was one of my goals was to, like, <laughs> look for stuff that I couldn't eat here. Oh. Like Cuban food, good Mediterranean. Oh, yeah. Well, we have Cuban barbecue. Isn't that Sashmo's? No, 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 no. That's Creole. Oh. I'm like, look, you should see the look I'm giving her right now. I'm like, it is not Cuban food. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, I had Spanish tapas. Oh, mm. Yes. So I'm sure I didn't. Uh, it, it, I, I, I'm hoping that it just kind of um, balanced out. Well, I lost weight on our trip because we walked <gasps> awesome. so much and we ate so much. But then I came back to work and gained it all back within a day. Really? Like, within a week, I had gained all the weight I had lost, plus five pounds. How's that possible? So I met with a nutritionist, and she's like, I think you're not eating enough. Oh. Or, like, your mental health, like, your, mm-hmm. like, 
mm-hmm. struggle is contributing it to it as well. Okay. And I was like, okay, so she gave me a list of things I have to do now. All right. Just eat more. Okay. Probably not emotionally eat. Mm. Shove five donuts in my mouth at the same time. I'm not an emotional eater. Oh, I so am. I shut down. I do if I'm like depressed, but if I'm like just upset, like I just automatically want to eat all the food. Oh, yeah. See, I don't eat anything. Mm. 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 Anyways. So. I guess our listeners don't want to hear about our um, eating habits. We'll talk about other things now. (laughs) Like, so actually, great segue. So what are we drinking today? Well, it is officially, well, okay, it's not officially summer because that's June June something. But it feels like summer. It is. It's like 82 to 10. It's gorgeous. It's sunny. Yeah. Clear blue skies. Not a lot of wind. Not too much wind today, which was nice. Mm -hmm. So I made iced tea with our amazing Plum Deluxe Herbal Books and Tea Herbal Blend. Yeah. How is it? It's so good. I know. I'm expecting it down. I rode my bike to and from work and I, the thought of having hot tea today was miserable and then I came here and I saw that Corey was pulling out normal glasses and I was like Ooh, we're getting iced tea today <laughs> see I did, and she didn't even request it I was just like today feels like an iced tea kind of day it's like we're partners in crime meant to be meant to be um so speaking of our herbal blends uh we've been doing some brainstorming and want to give our listeners a little teaser Actually, this might already be out by the time this releases TBD, but we still need to talk about it on here. So either way. Um, So part of our plan, I think we've mentioned this before, is that we want to sell the tea in order to fund our podcast. Our operating costs aren't huge, but, you know, they add up. They add up. And Kiri and I aren't made of money. And unfortunately, no. And we run a pretty bare bones and don't have opportunities to do a lot of creative stuff because it all comes from our budget. It all comes from our personal budgets. So that was part of why we got the tea is we want to sell the tea as a fundraiser. And so then I had this burst of inspiration and I was like, we should do a GoFundMe or Kickstarter. I don't know what it'll be by the time we release this, we'll have a plan, but we are going to do a GoFundMe. We'll say GoFundMe just because that sounds more logical for what Mm -hmm. we're aiming for. Um, where if you help fund us, so if you like listening to us and want us to keep doing this, um, for a small amount of money, you will get tea and we'll keep having tiers. You know how they do that. They'll have like, if you spend this much, you get this. And if you spend this much, you get this. So some of our other ideas that we're going to put out there is personalized book recommendations from Carrie and I Mm -hmm. going all the way up to wait for it. Oh, do you want me to say it? Yeah. Is it about coming on our show and getting a personalized book recommendation from both of us? Yes. You could have a guest appearance on books and tea podcast and get a personalized recommendation, two recommendations, two recommendations, one from each of us. Yeah. So yeah. So uh, be on the lookout. We'll be social media in it up and we'll probably send out a message via our blog and, um, yeah, we hope we get a little bit of support. Again, we're not trying to be greedy here. We just would like to cover our basic operating expenses. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> be able to buy a book here and there and not just rely on the library or feel guilty about spending money on a right. book or tea yeah. or both. Or both. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, we'll keep going either way, but you can help us 
Yay. And that would be so lovely. Since we give you this caring. It is. It can be your thank you to us for all the great entertainment <laughs> that we give you. <laughs> oh, oh <goodness>. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, underdogs. Um, so Kiri, I did some research, yes. but I want to ask you some questions and see what you can just parse oh, I out. I feel like I'm in third grade again. You're a smart cookie. I think you can do this. Okay. So what makes something an underdog story? If you had to describe to someone, what is an underdog? What would you say? The underdog is somebody that nobody thinks will succeed, but then comes through. Okay. Yes. That's really great. So, uh, you know, again, thanks to our lovely Wikipedia folks and some other things. Uh, an underdog is a person or group in competition, usually in sports and creative works, who is popularly expected to lose. It's kind of funny they use the word popularly expected. <laughs> I know. It's kind of a, what is that called? A... Yep. And, uh, and so there's a favored team. They're the top dogs. And then when the underdog wins, this is an upset. And, uh, you know, and if you bet on an underdog, if you're a betting kind of person, you usually will get more money because the odds are um, in your favor. Yeah. Yeah. So where do you think the phrase underdog came from? Oh, goodness. <laughs> I actually knew this. I was surprised. I think I had this conversation with somebody sometime. Really? You mm -hmm. knew it. Hmm? You knew it? Mm -hmm. Is it like really old? Mm -hmm. Is it like Ernest Hemingway old? Uh, 19th century. So older than Hemingway. Wow. Cause he was 20th century. Yeah. Early. Was it Jane Austen? No. no. <laughs> There's a reason I paused them, so we'll come back to that one. Um, I don't I don't know. So it's very simple. You're gonna groan when you hear this. Oh god, I'm already groaning. Uh so it seems that both underdog and top dog originated from dog fighting. Oh Jesus. <laughs> the losing dog ended up on the bottom or under the winner who was oh. on the top. Oh. <laughs> I thought that was great. Um, so there you all. You you well you are welcome, listeners. You now can tell people what an underdog is. Um, so why do we like underdog stories? Why do you like underdog stories? Mm -hmm. So you can answer that as why do you like them, or why do we as people like them, or both? I usually like the underdog because they're not a dick. <laughs> So you're going to kick us up to an explicit rating? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, they're usually nicer. And I always kind of root for the person that doesn't mm -hmm. think that they're going to get it. And I think maybe that's because I was always, like, considered the underdog. Mm. I do find, you know, I have caught myself. I feel like I do root for the underdog as well. I, you know, if it's, like, a sporting event or um, I'm trying to think of an example. But I'm always like, oh, yeah, I want that team to win win because no one likes them right <laughs> right that's how i do the super bowl i just vote for the or root is it root root for the team cheer that cheer yeah get the team that usually mm -hmm. nobody else wants to do yeah i don't watch a lot of sports so i'm trying to think of what i well, i watch figure skating and i'm thinking <laughs> that is a sport it's totally a sport oh my god we'll talk about this offline Ugh. <laughs> It's so funny that that's like the one sport that you brought up. And I like horse racing. I don't really like to watch tennis. 
I just like to play it. Where else a horse racing a sport? It's, it's totally, a horse that's doing the sport. It's totally a sport. Yeah. You got to train them. The jockey has to be an obstacle. Yeah, but the horse is doing all the freaking work. I know, but there's still a lot of strategy. If you'd read the book. <laughs> oh. Burn. Spoiler, In- Jerry didn't read either. Because <laughs> I was in Europe. <laughs> Oh my god, I was in Europe, and so I didn't read any books. So she goes to Europe, and she loses her brain. Um, Anyways, so here's what I found, which I thought was actually really interesting, is that the underdog is actually more of an American culture thing. Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Um, And it... (laughs) This is Wikipedia language, so bear with me. This harkens, who uses the word harkens, uh, to core Judeo-Christian parables, such as the story of David and Goliath. Ah, yeah. I don't even know that story. You don't know the story of David and Goliath? No. Okay, go look it up. We're not going to waste our listeners' times. Um, Big guy, little guy, little guy wins. Mm. Yeah. Underdog. Yeah. And it reflects the ideal behind the American dream where someone who is poor and or weak can use hard work to achieve victory, which actually I hate that concept. It's not true. The pull your up, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It rarely happens. Yeah. And yet we can perpetuate that. So that I did not like, but I was like, okay, fine. And then of course, surprise, surprise, underdogs are most often found in sporting culture. And um, a historian, David M. Potter explain that underdogs are appealing to Americans, not because they simply beat the odds, but overcome an injustice that explains those odds, such as a game being unfairly rigged due to privilege and power. Mm. So that made me feel better. Cause I was like, okay, now we're talking about privilege. So yeah. Yeah. So I also did a little research on classic literary underdogs. Mm. Any thoughts? Any- Jane Austen. How about Jane Eyre? Ugh. <laughs> whatever okay keep going um well jane austen is not so char- think characters mm. not authors i don't like this game just tell me why <laughs> ruiny my fun all right listeners you need to uh message us any classic underdogs that we did not mention these are just a few so lenny in of mice and men by john steinbeck uh the slow guy. Yeah. Yeah. Frodo Baggins and Lord oh. of the Rings. I love a twist. Oh. Can I have some more, sir? Oh my gosh, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> you think I was on summer vacation or something? <laughs> I'm not done yet. Harry Potter. Harry Potter's come back to Hogwarts. And the tortoise. And the tortoise and the hare. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> Oh. Any Stephen King underdogs? I'm sure there are some. I didn't have any for this list. But you know, look at all your Stephen King books. I do have a lot. He's had a book come out. Yeah. You're lucky I haven't made you read a Stephen King book yet. Although I think you would like them. I think I would too, as long as it's not any of those big ones. <laughs> Listeners, we gotta perk Kiri up. She admitted to me she's in a reading slump. I am in a reading slump and a knitting slump. Oh, I'm man. just in a slump of all things besides baking. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you just need a break. Yeah. So, lucky for you all, she has read most of the books that are coming out, so <laughs> she can slump all she wants for the next few episodes. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
Well, so we're gonna mix things up a little bit. We're gonna go ahead and go into sponsor time. Oh yeah, do it. Um, and then we will talk about our books. Well, you're gonna talk about our books. Well, you'll have some stuff to say. You always do. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So today's sponsor is actually a book. It's The Dog Healers by Mark Winnick. If you've been paying attention to us on social media, you will notice that I just posted a review recently. And a copy was provided to us in exchange for a fair review of the book. His agent follows us and noticed that we were going to be talking about underdogs and thought that this might be a fun tie-in. So uh, the review is posted on social media and we'll also include it in the show notes so you can have it right there. So here is what the little description has to say. Finally, a powerful heroine. Mark Winnick's debut novel is the suspense-packed story of a fierce young healer named Isabella who can breathe life into ailing dogs and turn racehorses into champions. How convenient that we're going to also be talking about racehorses. Yeah. In the tradition of Eva Peron, she ignores her Argentinian culture's ideas about female roles, plunging into the shadowy reaches of the horse racing world where thugs would turn her gift into riches. To her, money is just a means to her dream, creating a haven for all dogs, be they wretched, ill, or aggressive. Isabella wields wit and charisma among society ladies, twisting gold-braceleted arms for donations, exerting a still greater spell on men. This includes her handsome protege, Carlos, who yearns for the love Isabella shares with her dogs. But her dogs are her allies as villainous threats mount. Isabella fights the face of her fight faces the fight of her life, but when you've got the dogs, you're not in it alone. So, yeah. it was a cute story. So, um, definitely, it was it was a fun and easy read. Um, if it sounds appealing to you, check it out. All right. So, I find it really funny that we separately picked um, two nonfiction books set yeah. during the time same time period. Yeah. And in each book, the author references the focus of the other book. I don't know if I got that far. So in The Boys in the Boat, um, <laughs> the Seabiscuit is mentioned no less than four times. <laughs> I swear to God. I was like, stop it. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah. So I know you didn't get very far into it. So oh, why did you, why did you pick it and why did you stop? Let's start there. So I picked it because I got a really good rating on Goodreads. Maybe you need to stop just picking based on Goodreads. <laughs> Maybe. Because that's not working for you. <laughs> you know, it has failed almost every time. It has failed came. almost every time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I picked it. <laughs> and I think I got, I don't know, maybe 40 pages in, 50 pages in. Mm-hmm. I got to like chapter four. And it was just too much backstory. Gotcha. Like I didn't know... Like, I just wanted to get into what they experienced. You knew you were going to say <laughs> Too many words. <laughs> too much? Too much description. <laughs> what? Too much? Carrie thinks there's too much description. <laughs> Shocker. That's <laughs> my technical writing background. I can't help it. So, I mean, it just didn't catch me. Like, mm. it was hard to keep track mm-hmm. of who they were talking about and okay. what they were doing. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I decided to be in Europe instead. Okay. Do you want to, ex- which ironically, this takes place partially in Europe. Yeah. Do you want to give a quick 
ex- explanation of what the book's about to our listeners in case they don't know? Because I didn't know. I thought it was, I actually thought it was like a refugee story. <laughs> so, uh, well, oh, instead of row rowing story. Right. Yeah. I mean, can you see that from the title? Yeah, I guess. But nine Americans and their epic okay. quest for gold at the 1936 But, but initially Olympics. on our notes, it just said the boys in the boat. <laughs> okay. It didn't have the subtitle, <laughs> which was very important. <laughs> so this book is about uh, nine working class men who decide to become rowers, I guess. Yeah, in the, at and, the University uh, of Washington. University of Washington. And, and the timing is important. It's during 19, the 1930s. So, so right in the middle of the, the Great Depression and, and the Dust Bowl. And the crazy Hitler. Um, yeah. So, oh, I don't, I'm just reading the back of the book because I okay. don't know anything about it. All right, that's book. probably enough. People get it. Yeah. So, but it says that they're challenging the German boat rowing for Adolf Hitler. Yes. So they challenge the Germans? Well, well they, they challenge lots of people, yeah, but including the Germans. So it does say drawing on the boys' own journals and vivid memories mm-hmm. that they that this man created an unforgettable portrait of an era that made me want to throw it out the window. And shocker, <laughs> guess and who, Corey loved guess who it. loved it. <laughs> See, and I anticipated that you were actually going to hate both of these. Um, and so you I don't was know me. <laughs> I think I know you just a tiny bit. Give me that. You know me a lot, but like <laughs> I like to pretend like nobody knows me. <laughs> you want to be unpredictable. Exactly, but I'm completely predictable. Um, so I, I had a couple thoughts just speaking because I noticed we've whenever we circle around to creative nonfiction, I adore Love it, it and, and I hate it. And I and so I kind of came to a couple conclusions, which I think is just insight into me, but maybe insight for other people um, in their own reading styles. In that I was a history major as an undergrad. I don't particularly like reading history books. Like I wouldn't go to the history section and say, pull out, I don't know, a book on King Henry the eighth and his seven wives. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, I, so here's the thing with me in history is I find the history historical events themselves interesting. I often find when they're written in a uh, academic book as a history book, it really boring because it just reports the events and what happened. Right. Whereas with historical fiction or creative nonfiction, what do you have that is different? You have a lot of words and a lot of backstory. And it's and not just about the events. It's about the people. I like some historical fiction. I know you do. But it's I but it's not on the other ones that we've picked so far. <laughs> But I think, so I guess, like I said, this is more insight for me than for you, I think. But I think I'm drawn to this type of stuff because I need for my history and my fact, we'll just say my facts and my my historical events to be personalized. Yeah. I need an underdog to root for. (laughs) I I, I just think... um, because I find that you really adored the Hidden Life of Trees, which I really liked, mm-hmm. but it was almost too much because it was just about trees. It was about, yeah. And there was no people. Right. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> so um, I think that's where we kind of diverge a little bit. And right. I think that's why I loved both of these because I loved they brought these historical events to life in a way with real people and real events. And it, 
and emotions and all the things. And I, I think that's why they speak to me. So yes, I like all the words and all the description. And here's the key for this one too. And I think I would recommend this as well for Seabiscuit, although I didn't do it, is I listened to this. Mm. And here's what I liked about this from a listening standpoint and that why I would recommend it as a listening standpoint is it's about racing. And so obviously, yes, there's a lot of interludes of their stories and their backstories and their family and friend relationships. But in particular, when they were, when he was narrating the races that were happening, Mm -hmm. like literally my heart was speeding up and like, I was finding myself holding my breath and like, Oh my gosh. I mean, and you know, and because it was like listening to a sports commentator. And, um, (laughs) I also had this funny flashback. So, you know, I went to a tiny little private liberal arts college, Mm -hmm. came from a tiny little podunk rural town. And for whatever reason, when I arrived there, I had it in my head that I wanted to row crew. (laughs) Yeah, you should see the look on Gary's face. (laughs) I must have read about it. I don't know. I can't remember why, but I, it felt like this very preppy thing to do at this little preppy college that I was going to. (laughs) And they had a rowing club. And so I went to like the interest meeting and they took us out to some lake where they practice mm-hmm. on like the first, you know, practice. And then that's when we had to unload the boats and carry them mm-hmm. down to the water. <laughs> and that, and my first realization was I really didn't enjoy carrying gigantic heavy things. <laughs> My second realization is I had zero timing. And so, you know, they're like stroke. And I'm like, (laughs) so I did it once. That was it. Yeah. But it brought me back. I mean, so I think for whatever reason, and I don't know why I've always had this fascination with rowing and crewing. And so it was really fun to read a little bit of the history of rowing and crewing, um, boat making. And then what I really, again, what I thought was cool is woven into this was the rise of the Reich. And so it kind of bounced around, you know, it it had kind of the main protagonists, like the main guy, Joe, I think his name is, yeah, Joe. Um, Like he was kind of the primary character, but they gave the backstory on all the other rowers. Mm -hmm. But they also talked a lot about the coaches and the boat maker. And then they would alternate and all of a sudden they would be in Germany and talking about what was going on as during the rise of the Reich and how Germany was in the process of, well, number one, trying to begin eliminating Jews. And then two, um, wanting to have this beautiful experience for everyone coming for the 1936 Olympics mm-hmm. um, and hide the fact that they were in the process of doing this great buildup to persecute and kill yeah. all the Jews. And so that was really fascinating to me to kind of have all these like storylines interwoven. Um, I think the book Unbroken that I mentioned mm-hmm. also takes place in the 1936 Olympics and it's about an Olympic runner. Huh. An Italian runner, and I okay. loved that book. Huh, loved it. Which it, is the author of Sea Biscuit. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, I I think that's the same book. I think okay. Yeah, I mean, I I've definitely seen Unbroken. I don't, I can't remember what it's about, but I that would make sense based on what I know of her writing. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I thought it was good. Um, and I really think, but I I wonder if I had picked the actual book up, if I would have struggled to get through it. It was just like, the last thing I remember was little, little boy, Mm so-and-so moved in back with his father and his new wife, but then his new wife didn't like him. So picked him out. And that's where I was like, I can't read this. Oh, she was a horrible. Yeah. Whoops.
<laughs> yeah, she it's was fine. a bee with an itch. Yeah. Um, I see you next Tuesday. Huh? I see you. Next <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> got it. Um, let's see if any of our listeners did. If we just offended them, sorry. Um, yeah, I again, I liked the backstory. I liked because it set him up as the underdog, like coming, you know, being pretty much abandoned by his father and having to take care of himself from a young age and not having any money. That was kind of one of the key things, I guess. How did these working class men end up rowing? Um, so the University of Washington is kind of the has been the underdog in rowing for a long time, leading up to this. Uh, they were in big competition with Cal Berkeley, but then but all the West Coast schools were kind of underdogs to the East Coast schools who've been, of course, doing it forever. And uh, so with the Washington team, being a member of the crew guaranteed you a work-study job, which is ha- which many of these young men were relying on in order to afford going to school. Mm. Again, remind- remembering this is the Depression era right. and the Dust Bowl and all these things were going on. So there's so many reasons why these guys should have not been successful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, well, should, Does it tell you if they won or not? Do you want to know? Yeah. Yeah. They did win? Oh, yeah. Okay. They I mean, I guess one. that makes sense because it's an underdog story. And you right. Should underdog one. Let's see this. Yeah. Their first seat rower was literally on death's door. They were, they were afraid he wasn't going to be able to row. He was like in a fugue. They were like, just keep going. <laughs> he was like, mm. and he like passed out as soon as they were done. Like, I mean, there were some really intense moments. Oh, um, and then just some fun things of like, you know, these young men from rural Washington state going, traveling across the country and train and exploring New York city and all of the East coast and then going to Germany, you know, some, Oh, and that was one of the things too, is they, they were like, congratulations, you won the row team, but we don't have any money to send you. So then there was this big thing back home where they were raising money for them. And of mm. course the second team was really wealthy and they're like, Oh, we have the money. So if you can't go, we can go. Mm. And then the other thing I thought was super cute, you know, they got these really nice clothes for traveling. You think about the Olympics even mm. today, they all have like their warm up suits yeah. and their workout outfits. Full makeup on, their Olympic hair is done. T- yeah. yeah. So they didn't, when in the competition, they didn't row in the rowing outfits that they were given to them because they didn't want to get them dirty and ruin them. Mm. And there's a tradition, I guess, if you lose, um, you take the shirts off the back of the losing team. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't want to lose their clothes. So they wore their old nasty workout gear to row the Olympic. That's awesome. (laughs) So there was some fun little touches in there. I, I, I was, I thought it was good, but, um, and it did take me a while. I mean, I, I probably listened to it on and off over a month. Well, not a month, maybe two to three weeks. Mm. So. Mm. While I listen, while I read other things that were maybe a little more fast moving. Yeah. But overall, I think as an audiobook, I found it moving pretty fast. Hmm. So Seabiscuit. Seabiscuit. <laughs> Another I know race. The movie. <laughs> Which it was a good movie. It was a good movie. Yeah. Toby McGuire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So another racing story. Yeah. About, but this time with a horse. With a horse called Seabiscuit. So things listeners may not know about me is that I love the Kentucky Derby. I actually love horse racing. Um, just in general. And so I've been wanting to read Seabiscuit forever because I just wanted to read the story. And and I'd heard good things about Laura Hildenbrand. I've heard she's an amazing writer. Mm-hmm. And she actually has a background I was reading in um, 
she used to write for magazines that cover horses and horse racing. Hmm. So she's well-versed in this. And I would say stylistically, it was, I mean, again, these books are very similar in many ways in that it kind of alternates between the primary characters, whether that's the jockey, the owner, the trainer, or the horse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and again, lots of challenges that they must overcome. Yeah. Um, ironically, as I'm processing, I'm like, oh, again, we're talking a West Coast, a West Coast horse who had this huge rivalry with War Admiral, which is one of the um, Triple Crown winners. Um, I think we've referenced that last time, which I now the, I do know the races this time. It's the Preakness, the Belmont, and the Derby. Mm. Um, starts with the Derby. I forget the order of the next two, but it's a pretty grueling. Uh, like, you know, like you have the Derby, and then like everyone's eyes are on the Derby winner because invariably the unless something happens to the horse, um, they're expected to race in the Preakness and the Belmont. And there's been I should have looked this up before today, but the I would say there's probably been less than 20 Triple Crown winners since the Derby, since they've been running all the races, and we're talking like 1800s through now, so oh, wow. several hundred years of racing. Wow. It's pretty rare for it to happen. A lot of horses will get two, <laughs> and not the last one, or you know, one of the others. Mm. Um, but again, you know, a lot of uh, you know, you have this horse based out of the West Coast, and then War Admiral, who's based out of the East Coast. And everyone wanted them to compete, and uh, War Admiral's owner was kind of squirrely and kept going, hmm. And so, you know, Seabiscuit kept having to travel, again, by train, thousands of miles across the country to go do all these races on the East Coast. Um, but it was also kind of cool to read about the rise of racing in California. So it talked about, like, this uh, Santa Anita tracks, which I was like, ooh, now I want to go to Los Angeles and go to the Santa Anita tracks. And, mm. um, you know, talked about how hard it was to be a jockey which you know that is a sport (laughs) where there's a lot of critique Mm -hmm. because um if you've ever seen jockeys they're tiny yeah like they're mutantly tiny some of the i mean pretty much naturally you have to be small but then they starve themselves they have like places they they most of them are bulimic um they will sweat weight off they'll have like sauna boxes where they'll go in um, because the more weight you have on the horse, the slower it's going to go. Right. Oh my gosh. This is insane. Um, yeah. So, but you also have to be incredibly strong. Right. You have to be, have your wits about you so you can see what the other horses are doing, what the other jockeys are doing. I mean, there is a lot going on in a horse race <laughs> and they're beautiful creatures. Oh my word. A thoroughbred is one of the most beautiful horses. I mean, they are just majestic Mm. and seeing them run like I want to say oh gosh I should have marked this maybe I did I have a couple dog ears a couple um I'm I'm totally gonna misquote this but I want to say they talk about the horse running I'm gonna say eight lengths and by lengths I'd be the length of the horse Mm -hmm. and that that covers like the length of a football field jeez that's crazy when they're in full gallop, they're like, wow. Yeah. And that's what they're built for. I mean, they love to run. That's what they want to do. Really? Yeah. Well, that um, makes me feel better because I always worry about animals. I mean, I'm not saying that there's not a dark side to horse racing, especially if you're getting into like small stakes stuff. But the level of racing that we're talking about here, these horses are worth millions of dollars. 
they have are so pampered. They're also really high strung. So, but like they have like these amazing stalls or like air conditioned and like I mean they they live a pretty lux- luxurious life. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know, I mean, all of the characters in here were very rags to riches, mm-hmm. very much underdogs. Um, you know, the horse was was one that everyone's like, that's not a th-. so Seabiscuit is actually not considered a beautiful horse. Um, you know, the owner of the horse, he started out as a bicycle repairman mm-hmm. um, again uh, during the depression. the depression. Thank you. In San Francisco. And then he became a car salesman and then he owned like all the car dealerships on the West coast. And then he decided he wanted to get into horses and he became like really rich. Um, the trainer was kind of a really, uh, laconic man Mm. and he was not very friendly and not, and I think he was one of those people that was never really valued for as good of a horse trainer as he was. And then of course, uh, the jockey, read he had he had multiple accidents and he kind of came from a really poor background and the fact that he got to ride this very prestigious horse was pretty impressive Mm. um so yeah i i really enjoyed it a lot (laughs) (laughs) and at some point they reference uh boys in the boat Uh, oh my gosh they do i swear to god i i was like yay look it was something about the one of the the crossovers the one that I think was specific to both was talking about what kind of protein they were taking in. Mm-hmm. And so they started feeding the horse similar protein to build up muscle because of what the... <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I know. I was like laughing. I can't remember which one informed the other, but that was like one of these like literally weird intersections that came out of the story. Mm. So, mm-hmm. well, now you don't have to read them because I've given you all the highlights. It's true. But luckily I have read the next two books. Oh, hey. Oh, hey. (laughs) Do you want to talk about our next two books? So our next two books are LGBTQA. Because June is Pride Month. Because June is Pride Month. And so I picked Simon versus the Homo Sapien Agenda, which is also a movie called Love, Simon. Hmm. I I haven't seen the movie. I just read the book. Um, And then This is How It Always Is by Laurie Frankel. Oh, they are both beautiful books. Yeah. And it's okay that you that you've read them since you're in a reading me, club. Yeah, I know. It worked out perfectly. Yeah. So. So a very different, it'll be a very so different, different conversation from the one we had today. So different. But it'll, it'll be, be just good. as entertaining. Definitely. I'm looking forward to them. I've read, this is, I've, well, I've read 90% of this is how it always is. My uh, honors 190 students would be really mad to know that I didn't finish the book. Man. Because it was when they were assigned readings for last year. Oh. But I ran out of time and I was like, well, as long as they've read the book. So I need to finish it. Yeah. And then I've not read the other one, which is a YA book. So I'm assuming it'll go pretty fast. Yeah. It goes by in like four hours. It's like fault in our stars, but not as traumatic. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, I hate that book. So that's maybe not a good. Well, no, it's just like writing. Oh, right, right. Okay. You know, it's like a 12 year old can read it and understand it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, I guess that is it for today. Have a good couple weeks. Talk to y'all later. Hey, book friends. We hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks for listening along with us. Head over to our podcast site to share your recommendations and your opinions with us on the books we have read. That website is booksandteapodcast.com. It's also where you will find our podcast show notes with a full list of titles for the books, along with our favorite tea and what we mentioned today. 
If you are on any social media, feel free to stop by our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter accounts. You will find those links on our website. To be the first to hear about the next new podcast and what we are working on, make sure you are signed up to our newsletter. 